Hey guys, my name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life Church, and I want to welcome you to our online teachings. One of our core convictions as a church is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. Now, I know that for some of us, coming into a church building might be intimidating, it might be scary, and I get that. But I want you to know that there is always a place for you here at New Life and that you were made for real in-person community. We meet on Sundays in downtown Wayland. You can check out our website for more information on service times. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through his word. Love you guys. About 10 years ago, I went on a missions trip to the south side of Chicago. And this was before I was in ministry. This was before I was a youth pastor. Um, it was before I felt called to vocational ministry. And so we, our team of students gets there, and we're sitting down in this organization director's living room in the south side of Chicago. And you can hear the city sounds all around you. You can hear people on the streets outside. And uh, he said something in the living room that evening that has, to be quite honest, kind of forever marked me. In fact, I'll, I'll never forget this statement, and it's really kind of stuck with me. It has become such a mantra for my life, for how I desire to approach ministry, for how I desire to approach people. And the thing that he said is, is this right here. You can't be Jesus to people you see as less than yourself. You cannot be Jesus to people you see as less than yourself. You see, I've, I've carried this statement with me as I've gone into hospital rooms, sitting next, uh, next to students who have attempted suicide. You can't be Jesus to people you view as less than yourself. I brought this statement with me to Haiti on mission trips to third world countries, you can't be Jesus to people you view as less than yourself. I've thought of the statement when my spouse is sitting next to me crunching chips loudly on the couch, and all I want to do is smack them out of their hand. I'm just, I'm the one that crunches chips loudly, to be quite honest. So, anybody else get really angry about that when you hear people chewing? Just me? Okay, I'm a jerk. You can't be Jesus to people you view as less than yourself. And yet, if you look at the cultural moment that we're in, billions of marketing dollars are spent on convincing you that other people are less human than you are. Entire political campaigns are built on convincing you that other people are somehow less human than you are. Maybe you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, I don't, I don't view anybody as less than me. But the reality is we live in a world where we are taught to view people as less than human, regardless if we recognize it or not. I want to just show you a few images. We're just going to scroll through them from this last year, just to kind of put this on the forefront of our minds. First one here is Joe and Carol. Any other uh, Tiger King fans in here? Right? I mean, the entire show, the entire premise of the show is based on them kind of dehumanizing each other and fighting with each other. Elliot Page and an unborn child. How many cultural conversations are we having about humanity right now? Protests all around. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's up? Who's down? <laughs> 
You cannot be Jesus to people you view as less than yourself. You know, as I look at these images here, I'm reminded that, that even in the church, in some ways we have, we have settled for a dehumanizing narrative of other people. Some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, why, why does he have to go there? Why does he have to go, call it political, call it cultural, whatever you want, why does he have to go there? My, my answer is simple, because Jesus did. All the time. In fact, it's easy to be in a series where we talk about being for people as a general term, but what happens when we start getting really specific about it? It starts getting uncomfortable, doesn't it? It raises up some level of tension in our hearts and our minds, myself included, not, not just you, me too, when I, when I see pictures like this. And here's, here's the reality of the world we live in, is that sin dehumanizes people. That's what sin does. Sin dehumanizes people, but Jesus rehumanizes them. Jesus offers dignity to people who have been dehumanized by the world. And today I want to look at two stories from the life of Jesus. Two stories that on their own are pretty famous. If you've been in church for a while, maybe you've heard both of them, but my guess is you've never actually heard them told together. And what scholars believe is that John intended, the writer John of the Gospel John, intended that these two stories never be separated from each other, but are always told together to see how profoundly potent the ministry of Jesus was at rehumanizing people who have been dehumanized. So the two people we're going to look at right today are, are these two people pictured up here, I chose from the show The Chosen. I don't know if any of you guys watch that or not. But the one on the left is a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus meets Jesus at night. He is a religious leader. He is a Pharisee. And the person on the right there is a woman who's unnamed, but Jesus encounters her the very next chapter in John 4. She is a woman from Samaria that Jesus meets at a well. And I just want to talk about these two people for a second as we kind of frame where we're going this morning. Because the conflict between these two people's cultures and politics and worship styles and practices would have made those images I showed earlier look like child's play. In fact, the, the conflict between these two people groups would have been so pronounced, and it is not accidental that John puts these two stories back to back in his gospel. Because on one hand, you have Nicodemus, who is a Jew. And on the other hand, you have this woman who is a Samaritan. And Jews and Samaritans, by the time Jesus lived, would have had generation after generation of dehumanization between each other, conflicts, tensions... You see, Samaritans were viewed as almost half-breeds or mixed races by Jewish people because they had married non-Jewish people, and so they had allowed pagan practices to kind of infiltrate their worship, and it was kind of a, a mix of things for these people. And uh, there's one occasion where we know that the Jewish people actually went to the Samaritan temple on Mount Garrison and burned the thing down. And on another occasion, Samaritans went into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem 
and scattered human bones all over the, the temple at Passover as a way of just saying, hey, we are not friends. We are political, cultural, religious enemies. Not only do we have a Jew and a Samaritan up here, we have a, a man and a woman up here, and the culture between genders was pretty hostile. It wasn't super friendly. There, there was a lot of dehumanization specifically of women during this time. Women, in a lot of ways, were viewed more as property than as, as people. And so as, as you look at these two stories, these two characters could not be more different. One is a religious outsider, the man, and one is a moral outcast, the woman. And Jesus lived in a world that desperately wanted him to pick a side. That desperately wanted him to say, whose tribe do you belong to? Whose team are you on? Who are you for, Jesus? And Jesus <laughs> was relentlessly for people. He wasn't more for Jews than he was for Samaritans. He was relentlessly for the world. And I believe there's something we can learn from the ministry and the interactions of Jesus with these two people today. So if you have your Bibles, if you brought them, or you have your phone, uh, open with me to John chapter 4, verse 4. John chapter 4, verse 4, as you're turning there, I want to set the stage for you. We're going to talk about the woman in Samaria first. So Jesus is on a journey, right? And he's headed from Judea to Galilee. And this is what happens as he is walking through Samaria in verse 4 here. And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour meaning it was about noon during the day. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now I want to draw your attention to a couple of things that are just, just fascinating about the way Jesus did ministry for people. Number one, the very first verse that we looked at says he had to pass through Samaria. Jews going from Judea to Galilee did not pass through Samaria. That was unheard of. In fact, they would often take routes three to four times longer just to go around and avoid Samaria. I asked in first service if anybody's ever gone three to four times longer on a trip just to avoid a certain area. And uh, Josh came up to me and said his dad, who is a massive U of M fan, will do everything in his power to avoid going through Ohio. He will drive around Ohio at whatever cost so that he doesn't have to go through Ohio. So Samaria is to Jesus like Ohio is to J Josh's dad. So there you go. But, but notice the interaction here between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Right away, the Samaritan woman knows that Jesus being there with her, and especially Jesus talking to her as a Jewish male rabbi, is so unheard of, so countercultural. And so what she does is she goes immediately to, well, Jews aren't supposed to talk to Samaritans. Jews don't do that. And when I was in college, I, uh, I was in a psychology class, and I remember learning about this, this concept called outgroup homogeneity bias. And that's a big psychological word that basically just means stereotypes. It's this idea that as people, generally speaking, 
What we tend to do is we tend to look at our own tribe as individuals, right? People in our own spheres and family, people that look like us as individual people with unique experiences, unique stories, worth listening to, worth hearing, worth spending time, and we view people like us as individuals. But what this bias says is that we tend to look at people outside of people like us as one kind of whole group. That's why people say statements like all Christians are the same. People outside the church often say all Christians are the same because we tend to view groups outside of our tribe kind of all as one demographic. It's the reason why there's such generational conflict because we look at our own generation and we see unique stories and individuals, but we can often look at other generations and say, well, they're all kind of the same. You can do that with politics. You can do that with race. Any issue that you want, you can kind of apply that issue. And it's not just an American thing or a Christian thing. It's, a, it's kind of a human thing that we tend to do that. And that's exactly what the woman does here with Jesus. She, she kind of points to and she says, you Jews, like Jews don't do this. Why are you talking to me? She's kind of viewing them all as one group. Here's what's crazy though. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't see just a Samaritan. He sees a woman with a story made in his image with experiences and longings and losses and pain. He doesn't see her simply only for her people group. He sees her as a woman with a story, a woman he loves dearly and came to save. And this woman is so stuck on this idea that my people don't like your people and your people don't like my people, so why are we talking to each other? That's essentially what she's asking Jesus. And I want you to see how Jesus sees a human in her, how he provides so much dignity and rehumanizes her in a way that she probably has never heard from a man before and from a Jewish man nonetheless. Watch what he says to her in verse 10 here. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So she hears him say this and it's a little bit confusing. She sees that he has nothing to draw water out of the well with and she's saying, what are you talking about? This weird kind of abstract thing you're calling living water. I don't know what you're talking about. And so Jesus leans in a little bit further and this is what he says. He says, everyone who drinks of this water in verse 13 here will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had one, two, three, four, five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now put yourself in the shoes of this woman for a moment. We know that by going to this well at noon, she was most likely avoiding people because women went to wells in the morning. They did not go to, to wells in the heat of the day. So she is trying to get away from people. She's trying to be alone. And all of a sudden you have this guy here who's starting asking her about the men in her life. Would anybody else be annoyed by this conversation? Like, why are you all up in my business, Jesus? She didn't know it was, you know, Jesus at the time. Why are you up in my business, random Jewish stranger? 
right? Why we got to bring Frank into this? He just wants to sit and drink beer on his lazy boy at home. Like, he doesn't need to be brought into this. Why are we bringing him into this? And what Jesus says, he gets so personal with this woman. I just, this is what I love about Jesus, is she lives in a world that has dehumanized her. She lives in a world where she's had five husbands. And during that time, what most likely would have happened is that she would have been discarded. Women didn't necessarily have a right to divorce a man like they do today. And so this isn't a woman necessarily, we believe, that was kind of just going and sleeping around and leaving men all the time. No, this is a woman that knows very, very well what it feels like to be discarded, to be set aside, to be dehumanized. She knows this personally. She knows this culturally. She knows this politically. She knows what it feels like to be set aside. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, you are looking for your humanity in stale well water. And I have come to offer you something better. He's saying you're actually looking for satisfaction. You're looking to find your humanity to be rehumanized again in the stuff of this life that will ultimately leave you thirsty, that will ultimately leave you dried up. And guys, we do the same thing all the time today. We look for our humanity in things that will ultimately leave us dry, parched, and thirsty. If I just had that body maybe my spouse would pursue me more and be more attracted to me. If I just had that amount of money, maybe then I'd feel some level of security and stability in my life. If that group of people would just shut up, we'd know some peace in our world. Every single one of us, in one way or another, has bought into this dehumanizing lie that satisfaction is found somehow in something apart from Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is it is ultimately stale well water. It'll leave you wanting every single time. You were made for real living water. And guys, I got to believe that there are some of us in this room, some of us watching online who don't actually realize how thirsty we are. That here's Jesus offering living water, water that rehumanizes us, water that offers us dignity, that offers us humanity, and we have settled for stale well water. We have walked right past the person of Jesus, and we have found our identity in our political tribe. We have found our identity in our relationships, in our job, in our stuff. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm right here. I am the only one that can actually rehumanize you. And you are settling for water that ultimately is going to leave you thirsty every single time. See, if you want to understand the living water that I offer, and this is his message to the woman, you need to understand first how you've been seeking it from everything and everyone else in your life and how drastically it is dehumanizing you. How much it is just making you a means to someone else's end. Jesus is sitting with a woman whose people groups are literally killing each other over stale well water. You've been trying to get it through the approval, the validation of men, of other people, and Jesus is saying, I am the only man you need. <laughs> It's in this brief encounter that Jesus shows this woman how dehumanizing sin is and how powerful he is to rehumanize a person like this. See, well water offers momentary bliss 
followed by hell on earth. It'll leave you thirsty every single time because sin dehumanizes. Jesus offers a new way to be human. He rehumanizes us. So we're going to we're going to bookmark this woman's story for just a moment. We're going to come back to her, but I want to talk about Nicodemus now for just a moment. Let's look at Jesus' encounter right before this in chapter 3, verse 1. Like we said, uh, Jesus was meeting with Nicodemus at night, and this is what happens here as he meets with this religious leader. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So like we said, Nicodemus could not be more opposite from this woman, but he could not be more like on paper like Jesus. Culturally speaking, these two guys are on the same team. They're both men, they're both Jews, they're both religious, they're both devout. And so on paper, morally and racially and religiously, Nicodemus and Jesus should be on the same team. Nicodemus is a well-behaved Jewish man who had spent his entire life succeeding, being moral, being buttoned up, disciplined, successful, and religious. Now, I grew up in a pretty conservative Christian Reformed church. I was not Nicodemus as a kid at all. I was the kid that would scream in the middle of the church service, and my parents would have to drag me out over their shoulders, and I would scream, I don't want to be spanked, Daddy. They started calling me spanky. No, I'm just kidding. They didn't call me that. <laughs> Nicodemus was nothing like this, so he was, he was so devout, so religious that you would imagine Jesus would come and just pat him on the back and say, well done, brother. It's not what he does. See, the danger of being a Pharisee is that it's really easy to dehumanize other people when you believe you are the sole one responsible for where you're at. For your own success, your own achievements, the ways in which you've behaved well, it is really easy to dehumanize other people, to dehumanize women at wells when you are the Nicodemuses of the world. See, Nicodemus had most likely participated in the stoning of women like who Jesus was about to encounter. Part of his very job as a Pharisee would have been to cast stones at sexually broken people till they die and are dead. See, on one hand, Jesus desires in this woman to confront all of the external ways that she has been seeking satisfaction through men, through her ethnic identity, through whatever it might be. And on the other hand, Jesus is confronting Nicodemus, and he is confronting the ways Nicodemus has sought satisfaction in himself, in his achievements, and what he's earned, and how he's behaved. Are there areas of your life where you are abundantly self-satisfied? I've worked hard I've earned where I am. Them, not so much. Why did they get the promotion? Doesn't my boss see me showing up every single day early and clocking out late? God owes me blessing, and when he doesn't, he's letting me down in some way. Why does their life look so put together, and they're not even a Christian? I mean, we've all thought that in one capacity or another. What does Jesus say to the Nicodemuses of the world who have been dehumanized in a different way than this woman? This is what he says to Nicodemus in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, you think you've earned this kingdom? 
You think you've earned your position through your good works, through your behavior, through your achievement? No, 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 you don't, you don't get it either. You don't understand it either. You think you deserve a pat on the back for making it to level 50? I picture Nicodemus like one of those um, hedge fund bros that like the Reddit guys took out with GameStop stock. Like just Jesus comes in and he just like wipes him out. He wipes out all his pride. He wipes out all of his superiority because sin dehumanizes. It makes us believe that we can earn favor with God by putting ourselves up at the expense of other people. You will never be Jesus to people you view as less than yourself. It's not by striving. It's not by earning and behaving. And it leads people like Nicodemus to believe they are more worthy of the kingdom of God than women at wells with five husbands. And that could not be further from the truth. See what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here. He's saying, you can't earn your way into this kingdom. You can't buy your way into this kingdom. You can't perform your way into this kingdom. You can't achieve or break in. The only way to enter this kingdom is to be born into it. Do you realize how humanizing that message is? You can't do anything to get into this, this, this kingdom. You have so much dignity and so much worth that the only way for you to enter this kingdom is to be born into this kingdom as a helpless, surrendered, fully human child because sin dehumanizes us, but Jesus rehumanizes people. See, Nicodemus and the woman at the well are actually not all that different. They're actually painfully similar to each other. And the reason is, is because they both meet Jesus from a place of wanting to hide. Nicodemus at night and the woman in the well at noon, away from other people, they both encounter him in a place of wanting to get away and wanting to hide. And both of them have been dehumanized in different ways. Both of them have looked for satisfaction in all places other than the person of Jesus. And both are in desperate need of a Jesus who can rehumanize them once again. And that's what he does. It's in the story with Nicodemus between these two stories where Jesus says some of his most famous words. Chances are, if you haven't even grown up in church, you've heard Jesus say these words. Probably his most famous ever spoken. This is what he says about people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but to have eternal life. Jesus offers himself to the world. He offers himself. And Jesus has the same message to both of them, whether it's a woman at a well who is seeking stale well water or a man in the religious system who's seeking his own approval, his own achievements. Jesus' message is the same. I love you, but there are some things you're going to have to unlearn if you want to be part of my kingdom. There's some things you're going to have to unlearn about yourself, about other people, if you want to be part of this kingdom of mine. I've mentioned this before, but um, several years ago, I went through a pretty intense counseling journey. So I've shared that I walked through a pretty dark season of depression, anxiety, even suicidal ideation, and uh, was in a really, really dark place, was in a lot of counseling appointments for it. 
And uh, so it had been a good portion of a year that I was journeying with this particular spiritual mentor. He's a phenomenal guy, former pastor. And uh, we had just journeyed. He has a whole program where he walks people through and helps walk pastors through just different experiences and stuff that they've had. And uh, I'll never forget one of the sessions that we had together. It was a particularly hard one had been a particularly hard week that week, and I just walked in, and I was just drained. I was just down. I was just, everything in me was just, I mean, it was stale well water, through and through and through. And he said, you know what? We're going to set aside all plans that we had for today. We're not going to go through our content or anything today. All I want to do is spend our entire time together uh, in healing prayer, where we just allow the Holy Spirit of God to expose what's in you, what's kind of bothering you, what's really kind of eating at you, and we're going to allow him, we're going to invite him to speak into that. It's like, okay, like, sounds a little weird, but sure, let's do it. So we started praying, and it was about 45 minutes into just this really intense time of prayer between me and him. And uh, he was praying, and then all of a sudden he says to me, I feel like God is kind of giving you an image right now in your mind. And he was, but it was weird that he kind of knew that and brought that up. I was like, okay. He's like, well, what, what is the image that he's giving you right now? And I was like, I don't really want to say it. I was honestly pretty embarrassed of the image that he had given me, that God had given me. And uh, he's like, no, I, I want to hear it. And so I said, okay. And so reluctantly I said, and I was embarrassed even by this. I said, the image God is giving me right now is me as a newborn child being held by my parents. He said, well, that makes a lot of sense. He said, so much of our time together has been kind of separating out, looking at your clouded view of who God is, looking at where you've looked for God and secondary identities, how you've settled for the dehumanization that sin offers. He said, that makes a lot of sense because that is precisely the heart of what it means to be born again. That you begin to see yourself when you are in Jesus exactly as God sees you. Innocent once again. Dearly loved. Whole. Made in his image. See, from that moment on, I knew I did not want to settle for stale well water anymore. I wanted the real thing, the real living water. And it is in this place that I believe is the only place where we can truly and fully be human like God intended us to be, is in Christ and the living water that he offers us for eternity. See, that's the hope of the gospel, friends is that our world is telling us constantly, this person or this group of people, they are your enemies, they are less than human. And what Jesus is saying here is, no, 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 that's not it. I have a whole new way of what it means to be human. Let me show you, this is the thing called the kingdom of God, and it looks entirely different from anything else you've ever seen in your life before. Stop settling for stale well water when you can have the real thing. So as we close... This morning, church, I believe that we have someone learning to do. Just like Jesus came to this Pharisee at night, just like he came to this woman at this well at noon, we have some unlearning to do. And the question I want to leave you with today is, are there things Jesus is calling you to unlearn? Are there things Jesus is calling you to unlearn? About others and about yourself. I want to give you a a few ways that we can make this practical in our lives.
Are there things Jesus is calling you to unlearn? Number one, start with your language. I have seen Christian after Christian after Christian sink to the lowest common denominator of our culture and the way that we speak to and about each other. I was uh, driving down my road the other day, and in one of the yards are two signs right next to each other. One of them says, Jesus Christ is Lord, and the other one says, my governor is an idiot. Now, you may agree, but I would argue that life in the kingdom of God means we need to unlearn some things about people who are made in the image of God. That Jesus goes to some of the most broken and sinful and hurting people and he rehumanizes them in a way their culture does not. James 3.19 says you cannot praise God with the same tongue that you criticize and demean and dehumanize people who are made in his image. Brothers and sisters, this should not be so. Church, why are we struggling with this so much right now? Jesus rehumanizes people. The second thing, move in closer. Jesus didn't go around the Samarias of the world. He went through the Samarias of the world. Listen to people's stories. Share your story. One of the most powerful things that, for me as a pastor, being here in this community is the ability just to listen to people's stories. And you all have some really good stories, really powerful stories. Don't just see people for the labels that our culture puts on them, but actually see people how Jesus does as people with stories and experiences. I love this this quote here. This is, my enemy is just someone whose story I haven't yet heard. And then the last one here is, I want you to invite God in the process. Invite God into the process. One of the prayers that I prayed even before getting on the stage here this morning was, God, give me your eyes to see people with this morning. God, give me your eyes to see. Not our culture's eyes, not social media's eyes. God, give me your eyes to see people with, made in your image and dearly loved. And in that process, there's going to be some repentance and there's going to be some conviction and there's going to be some things stirred up in that process. That's okay. That is a good thing. I need that. You need that. But imagine what could happen if we as the church said we are going to show the world a different kind of way to be human. We're not going to settle for the methods of the world when it comes to what it means to be human in Christ. We're going to dignify people. We're going to lift other people up. We're not going to sink to other people's levels who are just degrading people. We're going to build them up just like Jesus did with both of these people that he encountered. So we're going to respond this morning in worship. And I want to invite you right where you are. Maybe you're, um, maybe you're stirred this morning. Maybe something's uncomfortable for you this morning. Good. <laughs> That's the goal. But I want you to respond in worship this morning. The, the altar is open. If you want to come up here and you want to kneel down and you just want to pour your heart out to God, if you want to stay in your seat, if you want to stand, if you want to raise your hands high, respond however you need to in worship this morning. And let's praise the God who dignifies people together.
God, you are so good. And we are so grateful for who you are that when you looked at us, you didn't just allow us to stay your enemies, but you crossed time and space, heaven and earth, Samaria and Judea to get to us. God, may that be our same heart towards other people. God, may we not settle for the lowest common denominators of our culture, but may we lift other people up and dignify them just as you did with us. God, give us your eyes to see other people. It's in Jesus' name we pray.